Good morning, church family. Good morning online. Signs are meant to help. We've been preaching this summer through the miraculous signs from Jesus Christ. But not all signs, however, are as clear as others. Let's look at four signs together that perhaps confuse more than clarify. Let's start with number one. So this is an actual street corner, and I'd love to know what you're supposed to do. The purpose of this sign is you are supposed to turn right, not go straight, not turn around, not turn left. But then you have the addition of people crossing. So that's one. Let's go to the second one. This is a sign of an actual entrance into a city. It has somewhere around 20 to 22 things you cannot do in their city. But I love that they encamp it in a heart. So they care for you, but you just can't do anything while they care for you. The third sign, I'll let you digest this one. Really not sure what you're supposed to do with this one. Do you not fly or do you not drive or do you not proceed? And then my personal favorite is the fourth. So this one here used to say, turn right, but the person's job was not to erase the sign clearly, but just to paint. He's the painter. So he's painted over left, and now you see nothing but confusion as you enter this in London, England. Last week, Pastor Ken preached to us of a royal official with a gravely ill son from John chapter 4. That official knew precisely who to turn to for healing, which was Jesus Christ. You remember when Pastor Ken preached from John 4, and we're going to be in the Bible, so I welcome you to get those open now and turn to John 5, which we'll get to momentarily. But when Ken was preaching, he talked about a man who sought Jesus, a man who pursued Jesus, a man who begged Jesus. And this man also believed, you remember? He believed Jesus before he saw the healing. And we'll also remember from that story at the end of John 4 that at the very hour that Jesus said, your son will be well, he was well. And when he came back miles later and found his son, he was well at precisely the moment Jesus said. His belief was affirmed. The world affirms that seeing is believing, Pastor Ken said. But that day, the official and his family actually learned the most valuable lesson, which is what I hope to impart to you today, which is believing in Jesus is truly seeing. Believing in Jesus is truly seeing. It's the way we wish that every story would end, right? It had that storybook ending last week. But when they divvied up the preaching assignments, maybe I got the short end of the stick. For this week, we are going to dive into John 5, and it does not end the way that perhaps we wish it would end. But we will not change God's word. We will preach it unapologetically. And so, we turn to John 5. And today, we're going to look to the Lord and his word, but let's go to the Lord in prayer first, so our hearts are ready and proper. 
Heavenly Father, we have just sung about turning to Jesus, looking at his glorious face, his radiant face. We pray that the things of this earth truly do grow dim in the light of his glory and his grace. May that be the meditation on our hearts. Open our minds to what you wish to teach us. And may we apply that which you wish us to learn from your message, we pray. In your precious son's name, amen. So, let's go to the background. The first main point is called background information. Those that are note takers, you'll notice I've left you about an inch at most per section. My apologies. We have more ground to cover today in our points. Jesus went to Jerusalem, we learn, in verse 1. And as you look to your Bibles, you'll notice that he went there for a Jewish feast. And in verse 2, we see that Jesus visits a place called Bethesda, which means a house of mercy or a house of outpouring. And according to the Gospel of John, Bethesda was a bathing pool with five porticos. These are Old English translation would call these porches. So you've seen here as you have Jesus coming up to Jerusalem and coming into a busy place with multitude as we pick up, as we look a little further, of invalids, people that are infirmed. There's the people that are lame, the people that are blind, the people that are, that are sick. These are long-term invalids that are gathered at this pool. And so the first question we have to ask yourself is why? We'll get to that. But the question that I wrestle with always with this is, is there something here that is more than meets the eye? D.A. Carson, author, professor, adds here, there is actually a record, listen carefully, of a pilgrim who visited Jerusalem in A.D. 333 and described a pair of pools with five arcades, which he called Bethesda. This site subsequently has been excavated by archaeologists, which seems very plausible to fit this excavation site that's mentioned in John. Origen, in his commentary, adds, since then, sporadic excavations have taken place, which have affirmed that this site that was mentioned here in John 5 is actually near the church of St. Anne. And so, what's the point? Once again, archaeology has uncovered what we already know to be rock-solid truth, which is God's Word. The world questions God's word, don't they? Always thinking this may not have occurred or this could not have occurred and finding after finding and archaeology dig after dig keeps on affirming and affirming that God's word is rock solid truth. And in the shelter of these colonnades, a great number of disabled people used to lie. And so now look down with me to verse three. Jesus enters the scene and sees a multitude of these invalids, the lame, the sick, and the paralyzed, and from the busyness of the crowd, and here's the point, Jesus stops the busyness, stops all the noise, and he finds one man, verse 5, one invalid, one man who has been sick for a very, very long time, and Jesus finds him because Jesus is Lord, and Jesus this day wants to display that he's not only Lord but he's also Lord over sickness, point two. So the invalid man wants to be healed. 
But the interesting part is here, he has no idea who has just entered the scene. So Jesus walks into this, the Lord, and the invalid man that has been an invalid, we learn from God's word, from 38 years. Now, the average person used to live at this time not much more than 38 years. So let's call it most, if not all, of his life. And here comes Jesus. And Jesus finds this one man and singles out this one man from among a crowd. And he comes to him. He has no idea who has just entered. In other translations, such as maybe the NIV, and you might be wondering, why did we read from the ESV this morning from the screen? And there was a reason. So if you have an NIV version, I want you to look down in your Bibles. I'm going to read it to you. Here, starting in verse 3, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Verse 5, one was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Continuing to verse 6. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So why did we read from the ESV when we normally don't? The reason is this. If you were to look at the NASB, the New American Standard, the ESV, English Standard, and other versions, you will actually notice that the word learned in verse 6 is not translated the same. In fact, it's translated know or knowledge. And I think that's the point. Jesus already knew the length of time that this man was sick. It was not a revelation to Jesus that this invalid man had been sick for 38 years. Jesus knew him, and Jesus pursues him, and Jesus comes to him. Jesus has existing knowledge. The ESV version translates it this way. Jesus, upon seeing this man lying there and knowing that he had already been in that condition for a long time, that is Jesus. Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus knows exactly how long this man has been ill for, and he comes to him. Jesus sought this man from a great number of people, and he shows an undeserved compassion to this man that day. And guess what, folks? He shows an undeserved compassion to us today. Very interestingly, the man in verse 7 does not know who he is. Look to your Bibles. The man does not answer the question. How does he answer the question? He says that no one is there to help him get in the pool when it's stirred up. Not only is his lack of direct response odd to Jesus, is it not? Typically, you would think when someone says, do you want to get well or do you want to get healed, what would you say? Yes. It's not how he responds. He says, no one's there to help me get in the pool. And Jesus is there to help him this day. But it lacks context, doesn't it? So why does the pool heal? I want you to find verse 4 and let's read it together. I'm teasing. All of you are scouring through your Bibles, trying to find verse 4, and you're thinking, where is verse 4? We just read it. I've read it to you again, and nobody noticed, right, that verse 4 was missing. So the missing verse in the authorized King James Version back in the early 1600s used to read something like this. Verse 4, that's maybe a footnote in your Bible, or maybe if you have a study Bible, used to say this, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters. The first one in the pool after such a disturbance would 
be cured of whatever disease they had. That used to be what was in the Bible. But the thing I love about the Bible, and perhaps you're like me, is as discoveries are found and more ancient manuscripts are found, there's such integrity to every line, to every word, that they went back and actually extracted that out of the Bible, kept it as a footnote, and there was speculation that that was added just to give context to verse 7. Now, maybe there's other theories. So if you read commentators or listen to other preachers, you might say, well, maybe the water stirred up because a, a pool would come in or a spring would come in that would cause the water to bubble up. Maybe there was salt properties in the water. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the context at all to the story. The point is not how are they there. The point is who is now there. They're there because they think that the first one that gets in the waters when they get stirred up gets well. And this man can't even get to the waters. Jesus singles out this invalid from amongst a great crowd. Jesus, the son of man, comes to seek and save the lost. That's the point. Jesus is not into random acts of kindness, but intentional acts of compassion. Not random acts of kindness, but intentional acts of compassion. Jesus, John Piper adds, finds the one. He's not into big crowds, he's into individuals. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. The man who Jesus finds does not qualify in any way for what Jesus is just about to do. But he asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? And despite the apparent lack of faith and lack of knowledge, Jesus graciously looks past the man's sin and fully restores this man to health. Look to your Bibles. Verse 8. Jesus, to show the effectiveness of the healing, says this to the man. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, perhaps you're like me. You remember what's coming in one more verse? We know that what's just happened, but we're going to learn the when this just happened. So the question is, why does Jesus right here say, get up, take up your bed, and walk? See, Jesus is, is recognizing that the last statement or the middle statement to take up the bed and walk is going to cause real waters to really stir in a few moments. If Jesus simply said, get up and walk, the waters aren't stirred. And there's a reason why. Because the people that are watching this, that are listening to this, that are aware of this, are going to say, wait a second, Sabbath, Sabbath, you cannot break the Sabbath. Because man-made rules had instituted by the Jewish leaders that you were not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. But Jesus inserts in verse 8, take up your bed and walk. That's what's happening. Now, perhaps you have been through physiotherapy. So when I turned 45, which is a few years ago now, I was playing basketball. And one of our sons, Jonathan, was there. And we had others in our family there. Julia was there and others. And I remember we were playing in a, in a kind of pickup little thing after church with some of the church people in London, Ontario, and uh, I went to do a layup. Now, there was nobody in the lane, for those that know basketball. It was clear. I went to go up. I might have got up a foot, 
okay, which is pretty good lift for me these days, right? So a little bit, just a little bit in the air, and as I went to extend off the right foot, I felt something tear. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling before where something is really wrong physically. As I went and extended, I landed, and immediately I knew I was in trouble. I had torn something. The shot went in, you're probably wondering, right? It did. I think we're still lost, but that's okay. All that to say is I landed. I went to the bench shortly thereafter, which sounds really fancy. Just basically, it's a little thing on the side. And uh, the next day I went to walk and I realized I had done something really bad. So I went into a sports clinic in our town and I remember vividly what the doctor said to me. I'll never forget it. He said, Chris, how old are you? And I said, 45. And he said, what were you doing? He looked at me and he smiled. And he said, uh, well, that, that makes sense. And I said to the doctor, I said, how does that make sense? And he says, well, you're 45. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, if you're 25, you wouldn't be here today. And so the body was letting me know that it had limitations, even for something so basic as that. Maybe I didn't stretch properly. This man, what's the point? It's not my physiotherapy that I had to just now go through for the next six months or six weeks or whatever it was. It felt like six months. Here, Jesus finds this man. And he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, do you notice in the text? Continue looking through it. It says, at once the man got up he took up his bed and he walked. There was no physiotherapy needed. This is a 38-year invalid. Perhaps, and I'm speculating, perhaps he never walked before this. It's possible. We don't know. But we do know this. The cure was instant because the source of the cure was complete. Jesus didn't say, get up, take up your bed, do some physiotherapy, come back and see me in a week. No, at once. Don't let that pass by us without realizing who we serve. The very moment Jesus speaks, the boy's cells are rejuvenated, we learned last week, transformed from miles away from John 4. John 5, at once the man was cured. He picked up his bed and walked. D.A. Carson adds to this. If you take notes, this is one that you need to take. Just as 38 years proves the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed, the walking, proved the completeness of the cure. So what's the summary of that? The cure is complete because of who has cured him. Jesus just as 38 years, in case you're trying to keep up to those notes, proved the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of the bed, the walking, proved the completeness of the cure. Four no's, one no, no. I feel like I'm back speaking to our children when they were younger. Okay, four no's and one no, no. We know Jesus freely seeks this man from among the crowd. We know that this is not a faith healing. It's not a fake healing, but it's a full healing. We know that the man is most undeserving of being healed. And we know from Hebrews, 
Hebrews 4, 15, that although Jesus, let me, let me get your attention for this point. Although Jesus finds this one man, he cares about all the other people. Okay? It's not that they don't matter. That's not the purpose of this story. But in John, or in Hebrews 4, 15, we know that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The purpose of the story wasn't for Jesus to come in and say, you're all healed. He could have. All of you get up your bed. All of you walk. He wants this one man for one purpose. But that story was going to be told 2,000 years ago here this morning and be transformative. So what's the no-no when it took place? So we have the four no's, but here's the big no-no. Jesus does it on the Sabbath. Now, perhaps you're like me. You're like, Jesus, really? Any other day of the week? Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Sabbath? Does it have to be? Yes, it has to be. It's exactly what Jesus is orchestrating. So let's look to verse 9. And now we're going to go from what has happened to when it has happened. Perhaps in your Bibles, I want you to look down at verse 9 with me. And maybe in your Bibles, like my Bible, it is separated midway through a verse. So look at verse 9. And I want you to notice where it says, now it was the Sabbath. Do you notice how it's oddly segmented from the rest of verse 9? I've spent more time thinking around this than probably profitable at this point, but I'm telling you it's important because the translators of the Bible, you'll remember in the original text, had to make decisions, had to make choices where to separate. This is a key separation. And the reason why is because we're transitioning from what has just happened to now when it has just happened, and then we're going to learn why it has just happened. Okay? So verse 9 continues that the day was the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders back in those days had 39 forms of work called the Melikah. Now these were works that were added onto Scripture. These were laws that they had layered on top of the Bible that prohibited works, that prohibited things. And these were, as Revelation 22.18, you will recall, if anyone adds to God's word, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. These were man-made, added laws that were layered on as if they were Scripture and treated as if they were Scripture. And they are yelling to this healed man, mentally, Sabbath, not Savior. The person that has just miraculously cured a 38-year invalid doesn't even make himself, we'll learn in the text, known at this point. Now, these Jewish leaders would have seen this invalid man at this pool many times, would they not? But instead of helping him, instead of being there for him, they were there to accuse him. Who did it to you? When? Why? That's what's going through their hearts. The Old Testament had forbidden work on the Sabbath, but the work they were supposed to refrain from doing was work that was connected to their employment. Works of mercy, acts of mercy, which benefit other people, fit the spirit of the canon, the Bible. 
but to forbid them was a complete and utter perversion of God's word. And that's exactly what's happened. The mat was not connected to this man's work, but rather evidence of his infirmary. And instead of praising God, they want to persecute. God, when he heals this man, they don't pursue him. They want to persecute. They're yelling, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. You have broken our laws, our man-made laws, and maybe you are wondering why. Why is Jesus doing this on the Sabbath? Because Jesus wants conflict to ensue. That's the purpose of this message. Jesus is intentionally healing one man on the Sabbath to create conflict with the Jewish religious leaders so that the journey to the cross will start. So John 5 is actually the journey to the cross in the book of John. It starts here. The conflict is designed by Jesus. The conflict, Piper adds, is the furnace in which the steel of Jesus' identity is demonstrated. Jesus is making the conflict happen by doing the healing on a Saturday versus a Monday. This event was the start of the Jewish hostility. Who is this man? That's the key question mark of this text. So we're going to get to it. The Jewish leaders ask him, who is this man, verse 12, that said, take up your bed and walk? The man who had been healed did not know, in verse 13, who had healed him, for Jesus had withdrawn. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, think about that for a second. Jesus has just healed a 30-year invalid man and immediately gets away. Why does Jesus leave without saying who he is? I think the answer, it's not explicitly told us in the text, is the tumult of people that wanted to be healed would have been exponential. If they saw this and he hung around, everybody that was invalid was going to come and flock to Jesus at this point. And perhaps the persecution that we're going to see a little little later would have started right there. But Jesus doesn't leave the invalid without his name. Jesus pursues this man not once but twice. First to heal him, and then to let him know who healed him. Jesus, in verse 14, finds him again. Jesus went back to him, pursues the man, and knew exactly when and where. Remember, this happens in the temple. He finds him. He warns him of a far worse outcome than just physical sickness. Friends, if I were to survey what dominates our hearts and our worries. Often, it can be things such as physical ailments, can't it? But you know, even if we live to 100, you know, Warren said 77, turning 78 this year. If you lived 120, that would be a good, ripe age, would it not? But you know what? All of us are born to die, unless Jesus comes back. We're on a journey. And the journey, whether it lasts 99 years, nine years, or somewhere in between, or lesser or greater, has one purpose. It isn't about how well we live here. It's how well we're prepared for there. Wellness is not about the physical healing, Jesus is saying here. It's about the eternal condition of the soul. 
In verse 14, Jesus finds him again. And he says, stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen. Speculation here is that, well, maybe the man's sins contributed to his physical condition. That's possible. The Bible talks about that. It's possible, but it's not profitable for us to speculate why he's sick. What is profitable for us to put our hearts on is why did Jesus say this? He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is far more concerned about his eternity in hell than his physical well-being on earth. And that's why verse 14 is inserted. What is crystal clear is Jesus is warning him. Nothing worse is more than just physical. Jesus had no intention of walking away from this man. It's not an accident that Jesus comes back and finds him. Jesus is not into healing simply for the sake of good health. Look through your Bibles and find the instances where Jesus heals. In every instance, there's a bigger purpose behind this. Last week, we learned of one that healed. Remember what happened? You had the official that believed and all of his family. And here, we don't read that, unfortunately. But Jesus is more concerned over his eternalness, his eternal state. The issue in healing is holiness, not just physical health. Stop sinning, Jesus tells him. Turn from your old life and follow me. The good news of Jesus Christ is only if you believe. See, this man, think about this, could have been healed, fully restored, and died and gone to hell. That's a possible outcome from this story. So is his healing really that profitable for him? Maybe temporally, yes. Eternally, no. So Jesus is drawing his eyes, our eyes, our minds to say, what is true health? Jesus' miraculous signs have a deeper purpose, which is twofold, to confirm his identity as the Son of God and to elicit faith in him because he is God. The authority of God rests on him here. And so the third point, which will be brief, circumstances did not dictate the outcomes. He alone had the authority to heal. They intended to persecute him in verse 16. Jesus, however, did not come to live and suffer, but to live, to die, and to rise again. Verse 17, and here's where it gets interesting. So Jesus doesn't only just heal this guy, come back and find him and tell him now who is his identity, but now he wants to turn up the heat. They're mad. The Jewish leaders are really mad because when he did it, but now Jesus goes, you think you're mad at that? Let me tell you who did it. And so in verse 17, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Originally, when this text was assigned to me, it was going to cut off at verse 15. And I realized from studying it deeply that 16, 17, and 18 are actually the key to understand verses 1 through 15. You have to understand verse 17 to get why this has occurred. Verse 18 continues, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God 
his own father, making himself equal to God. Okay? They are not happy. What went from frustrated has become furious. What went from irritation has moved to irate. Jesus has now set the stage and basically laid them into a track for persecution to him. Isn't that amazing? That's the purpose of this text. Verse 16 to 18 are the key. Jesus claims to have authority. Go back to verse 12. Remember I said this is the most important question. Who is this man? Who is this man? This man is Jesus. This man is the only son of God. This man is the promised Messiah. This man is the God incarnate. And John adds in 539 to 40 that Jesus, in speaking to the Jewish leaders, says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. But if you do not believe it, the, the writings found in the Bible, how will you believe my words? The point is simple this. They are the very scriptures that testify about me, verse 39, yet you refuse to come to me to have life, verse 40. The Jewish leaders are standing in front of the only person that can actually transform their future, and they're rejecting him. The point is simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. He has the authority of God because he is God. But will they submit to him? That's the question for you this morning. That's the question for me. Or will they rebel against his authority and choose to live autonomously? Will they honor his instructions or will they ignore his commands and elevate their man-made rules above his will? It is a battle we're familiar with as well. Each day we have to decide if we will submit to Jesus as Lord. They turn on him, but we do not have to make the same mistake. Let's pull it together. John 4, John 5, let's tie this together into two healings and three responses. And so my job now, if I do this well, is to take the baton from Pastor Ken and to hand it well to Pastor Jamie that comes after me. And so this is my attempt to weave together that transition for you. So if you can pull up the next slide, you will see last week we talked about Jesus, a healing that happened in Galilee. To the official, we see belief, we see healing, we see that the whole family believes as well. And there's a commitment to follow Jesus. That's the left-hand side of this. On the right, we see this is now in Jerusalem. We see Jesus finds the invalid man, a healing despite unbelief and questionable gratitude. And instead of turning to Jesus, he turns and tries to turn him in as an informant. And then what you see is Jewish leaders, and this is the third response, condemn Jesus. And that's the two healings, and that's the three responses. Which takes us to the final point, which is how do we now apply this text to our lives? So I wanna take this from three lenses. Jesus Christ. John 5, 1 through 18 is not a story primarily about a man who was sick for almost four decades. It is not primarily about growing anger and oppression from the Jewish religious leaders. This is entirely a story about Christ, the great physician who can heal physically, but more importantly, will heal spiritually for those that put their faith in him. This story reflects 
all of humanity, unable. This actually reflects each of us in this room. Each of you one day were unable on your own to respond. You were unwell. Jesus pursued you. Praise God. If it wasn't for that, you would not be well. That is what's to elicit our praise this morning. Our recognition of our inability causes us to have an overflowing of thankfulness when we properly understand that. Jesus has complete knowledge. He seeks the man. He knows his condition. He shows compassion. And the very Son of God has complete knowledge of us here this morning. This is not a game. You don't come to church just to do the right thing. This is a life. This is one that we dedicate all we have to someone that made us well because we were unwell on our own. And unlike in this one where we don't know where he turns to, we're supposed to turn to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to live for Jesus, and be transformed by Jesus. Jesus had heartfelt compassion on him. He has heartfelt compassion on us. Jesus has the sovereign power over all things at all times, over the planet, over the universe. They just showed this week a picture, don't know if you saw it, from space. It was the most detailed picture ever shown from space. And it has all the galaxies, and you can see them arcing around this, and it's the most detailed picture ever taken of our galaxy and other galaxies and such. And it screams, creator. Does it not? Jesus is the creator. He speaks, and everything obeys. If he wants you to live, you live. It's as simple as that. Jesus is the Lord over sickness. Jesus is the Lord over the Sabbath. And he is the author of life, sustainer of life, and the source of eternal life. Number two, or B, non-Christians. Sometimes we don't have a lot of time for non-Christian parts in our message. This week, I've spent more time bathing in this pool than any other part of this message, except understanding the text. How does this passage apply to a non-Christian? How does it speak to them? How does it draw them to repentance and belief? How does it warn them, rebuke them, and prod them? What does it say about the danger of an unbeliever's situation? These are questions I've been wrestling with. I've spent time with our ministry team. I've spent time with our administrative team asking these questions. We've been thinking around these questions. And they've helped my framing in some regards deeply. So number one under this category, or a sub-point under this, which there's no, not on the screen. You may be struggling with cancer or terminal illness, but that's not your real problem. The real issue is your spiritual health and where you will spend eternity. There are not two roads which you can walk. Either you will live for Christ or you will not. The tragic story ends with a cliffhanger that we have this morning. We want the man to believe and we want him to turn to Christ. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us that. But I don't want your life to be a question mark. There might be just one person in this room or online that I'm speaking to. Actually, that God's speaking to. That's what you have to determine right now. The question mark is not acceptable, is it? 
The future is not something that we want to hope for the best. We want to be certain of the best. There's something much worse than physical sickness and death. Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Recently, I was in a courtroom setting. to support a dear friend. And I remember the pain that the family was going through. But I also remember the accused man and their face. When the judge proclaimed them guilty, the man looked terrified. He turned, he looked helpless, He looked hopeless because he was. He had no ability to change what had just been passed. I'll never forget the look in his face as he turned to his family. But you know what? That's a foreshadow of what's coming. People think they can change roads at a point of death, but it's too late. You're alive. You have a purpose for being alive, and it's not just for your happiness. It's for your holiness. And my hope is that's not you. Friends, that's us without Christ. Rightly declared guilty and unable to respond. John 14, 6 tells us, I, speaking of Jesus, am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. We are helpless and hopeless without Christ. But by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, confessing our sinful state before a holy judge, and turning from our old sinful life and living for Christ, you will be saved. Not you might be, not you might be well, you will be saved made well. That's what this text is about. It's a choice. Faith in Christ is turning from sins, and living for Jesus provides eternal health and eternal hope for the hopeless. And finally, for the individual Christian, let me speak to the majority, probably in this room and online, that are watching. How does this passage apply to you and and to me? How does it cause us to have a deeper repentance and belief? How does it warn us, rebuke us, and correct us, and encourage us this morning? First, I want to speak to the infirmed. In our ministry team meeting this week, Pastor Chris mentioned a story of one of our people that's been struggling all their life, or a lot of their life, in a wheelchair. I don't know your pain. Jesus does. He said that the person wants to get out of the wheelchair the day they die so they can kneel at Jesus' feet. That's what we want our hearts to look like, don't we? That's what it's about. It's not about your physical wellness. Two quotes. Alistair Begg. 
we may be confident in this, that in the pain and the suffering is the presence of a faithful God. You may be hurting this morning. You may be suffering physically. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with you. Joni Erickson Tata, the second quote. Now, maybe you know her story. She was an invalid at the age of 17, quadriplegic, dove, broke her neck, thought she would die. And um, I want to read to you two quotes from Joni. If this doesn't break you, I don't know will. My weakness, that is my quadriplegia, is the greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every morning when I get up. So at my funeral, I want people to experience what I did that day many years ago, that their hardest trials are really their richest mercies in disguise. They are mercies because they force us into the arms of Jesus, where otherwise we might not be inclined to go. When we see the trials that way, our unruly hearts learn that the world is in no way our home. Isn't that true? And finally, to all Christians. Our hearts are a battlefield. You might not be struggling with long-term illness, but you are struggling in some ways, and so am I. Two opposing forces violently clash each day. Our desire for an autonomous self-rule engages in a fierce battle with appropriate desire to submit to the lordship of our Jesus Christ. Regardless of who we are or what situation we are in, we must diligently fight to obey Christ, putting to death our desire to be in charge. That's code for sin. We have to kill sin, mortify sin. It is a battle we can only win by the powerful work of Christ within us. So our marching orders are this, and then we'll pray. From Colossians 2, 6 to 7, the apostle Paul says, so then, just as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. Did you notice that? Just as is past tense, you have received, continue to live your lives present tense in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Praise God. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, the Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have faith through Him. May that be the result of today's sermon, Lord, for Your glory alone. For those of us who are already in Christ, may we be deeply rooted, continually built up. Please, Father, strengthen us in our faith so that we may have lives that are truly overflowing with thankfulness. For we too were once infirmed, and we too were once unable to help ourselves. Our hope now springs eternal for those that are in Christ. What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. Amen. Our hearts are full, are they not? So here...
is the benediction to send us off this morning from the book of Colossians and reading from chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great day. God bless.